Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust and father we just humbly ask and pray for uh, the assistance of your Holy Spirit as your Spirit wrote this very book that we hold, Lord. We trust that as the author, that indeed your Spirit would be the greatest one to be the interpreter and the one to explain to us what this book means. So we pray that he would prepare each one of us accordingly. Give us an ear specifically to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled in this place this morning. Help us to be alert and attentive, Lord, and help us to hear your voice speaking to us personally and powerfully the very things that you would want to say to us from this portion of your scripture. Lord, bless your word. You know what we're asking, and we trust that you'll do such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, have you perhaps ever said to someone or maybe even had someone say to you something along this lines, you don't have any idea how blessed you really are? I think on occasion, if we don't say that to someone, maybe we've interacted with someone where we've kind of thought to ourselves, man, you don't have any idea how blessed you really are. Or maybe we've kind of had someone in a reproof to kind of humble us and, and cause us to recognize and come into reality, had somebody say that to us, man, you don't have any idea how blessed you are. Uh, and when we say that statement, basically we're indicating that a person has kind of failed to realize or failed to recognize uh, the blessing and the opportunity maybe that's been afforded to them and their status or the great benefits that have been afforded to them in their particular situation in life and uh, how great they really do have it. Well, the same thing, I think, honestly, could be said on occasion spiritually regarding our Christian life. That sometimes as Christians, it seems as believers, we can almost live as if we have no idea how blessed we really are. Ephesians 1 says that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as Christians, sometimes it's almost as if we live out our Christian experiencing experience failing to recognize everything that's been supplied to us and deposited into our spiritual bank account. I mean, imagine if someone were to live out their life uh, practically uh, struggling to pay their bills and eating nothing but you know beans and hot dogs and just doing everything they can to scrape to get by day by day and always struggling financially and the reason they were doing that was because they failed to check their bank account and they never realized that some wealthy relative in some anonymous way deposited maybe let's say a, a million dollars into their account and here they were struggling to get by and struggling to get by and if they only had 
checked what was actually in their account, it would have transformed the way that they could have lived because they would have realized, wow, that's in my account. I can withdraw from that and that would help me and that would assist me and, and would give me a whole different way in which I could live my life. Well, I think the same is kind of true spiritually. God has deposited so much into our spiritual bank accounts and has put at our disposal the Bible says here, everything that we need for spiritual life and godliness by his divine power and his promises to us. And yet so many times, as God's word says, my people die for lack of knowledge. And we fail to recognize and realize how blessed we really are. And the passage in front of us seeks to kind of highlight and emphasize some of these blessings that have been given to us and supplied to us for our spiritual life. Now, as we begin a new book study together, Second Peter, this second letter, of course, that Peter is writing to a group of Christians, the time of this writing was really kind of just a few years after he wrote First Peter, which we studied together recently. And we know it was shortly before as well, Peter's death. Because we'll see in chapter 1 that Peter mentions and infers how he sensed or the Lord had spoken to him that he was recently uh, become aware that he was shortly about to put off his tent or basically referring to how he knew that he was about to die. So somehow the Lord had spoken to Peter, had given to him insight or a sense that very soon, shortly, that he was about to die and to pass off this earth and enter into the Lord's glory. And I bring that to your attention because we know sometime around late 67 AD, early 68 AD, historically is when Peter died. But more than that, we also get the sense then that this is Peter's dying words. And I find that interesting because typically somebody's dying words are usually pretty precious. They're pretty important. If somebody's laying on their deathbed and realize they're you know, stricken with cancer or that their time is limited, uh, those are usually special occasions when somebody may have some important special things that are really meaningful and matter to them that they want to convey to those who they care about and they love. And in a sense, we have here, really, you could say the Apostle Peter's dying words. This Apostle who walked with Jesus in an intimate way, who was a part of the early church and saw the power of God and the Holy Spirit at work after Jesus ascended. And here we kind of get his last words given to us. And keep that in mind as we're going through the value then of what this letter really must hold and the importance for those of us who study it that we can glean from it. Now, in both of his letters, the Holy Spirit, just like when Paul wrote letters, it seems prompts Peter's heart to address things that are concerns on the heart of God. And things that are a concern to God's heart, by his spirit, he would then direct like a vessel or like using a human being like his pen or instrument to then write down and record. And basically, in both of these letters, God addresses what would help his people with what they were facing at the time. And we talked about in First Peter, how in First Peter, basically, it was a theme, or in a sense, you could say, sort of the purpose of the first letter was to encourage and instruct those who were suffering. And it was a letter to suffering Christians. So it talked a great deal about how to handle suffering, how to navigate challenges and life difficulties in many different ways and really how to handle problems and pressure that was coming from the outside world now second peter has a different tone to it the theme of second peter is really to warn and to instruct god's people really from spiritual error that they were facing not from without but from within their own ranks 
And the theme of Second Peter really is addressing spiritual error that they were being exposed to as Christians and how there was error among them. And God here gives them guidance in this letter. He tells us how to navigate the destructive danger, which is just as dangerous as outside persecution. Now he says, you know what? Yes, there are dangers to face in the world as a Christian, but he says sometimes there are just as threatening things that God's people have to be aware of and careful about when we learn how to deal with spiritual error among the ranks of God's own church and how those things can infiltrate and begin to be just as deadly and dangerous. So it informs us that we have to accept the reality that the devil does not just want to devour people like a roaring lion. That's one of the ways he operates. But he also, like a slithering serpent, works his way among God's flock and gets himself in the midst of God's flock. And as he slithers in like a serpent, is looking in a deadly way to kind of just seduce God's people with a poison of lies whether it's false doctrine or false teachers or just living in a way that does not become the gospel that just causes confusion and deception. So you will see this letter will instruct us how to distinguish between truth and error. It's a letter that will talk to us about how to recognize a false teacher and to just realize, look, I don't care what you call yourself or what label you bear or how many times you stand up and say things from the Bible or about the Bible, how to identify, look, you're a false teacher. And you may say 98% of the things you say accurately, uh, but the 2 or 3% of things you say inaccurately are going to completely deviate off of the true course of what is sound doctrine. So he'll talk in Second Peter chapter 2 a great deal uh, in very picturesque language about false teachers spiritually. And he's trying to help God's people stay on track spiritually. And the thrust of the letter is telling us if we keep experiencing Jesus Christ personally and we hold to the standard of God's word as our measuring line for how we discern what's truth and error, then we will be greatly safeguarded spiritually. In fact, if you just flip with me to the very end of the letter, go to chapter 3, look how the letter kind of culminates. You almost sense this theme as he's closing out the letter. In the last part of the letter in Second Peter 3, he's talking in verse 16 about those who are untaught and unstable spiritually, and he says, who twist the scriptures. Now, I'm sure you've never noticed that some people can twist the scriptures and take God's word and twist it or put a twist on it to be able to do what they want or say what they want. And he warns of those who twist the scriptures. He says, 2 Peter 3, 17, you therefore, beloved, as a Christian, since you know this beforehand, people are going to at times try and twist the scripture. Since you know that, beware, he says, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but, verse 18, here's how you safeguard yourself. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So basically, he shows that if we're continuing to experience Christ personally and we're continuing to grow spiritually, that is probably one of the greatest safeguards we can exercise to protect ourselves against spiritual error and being seduced by lies. Well, look with me in verse 1. Let's look through these few verses this morning as we cover them. Peter opens the letter by introducing himself as Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle 
of Jesus Christ. So the letter opens with a typical ancient greeting or introduction. We talked about this before when we studied other letters, how they didn't sign their name at the end of a letter. And this was just in many ways practical because they wrote in that day prior to the time of the printing press when it was much easier uh, to be able to print out uh, God's word. In that day when they wrote things, they were written on scrolls. So as you had to open up a scroll, it would be very cumbersome to have to open all the way. Imagine the scroll of you know of, of Isaiah. I mean, how they'd take multiple scrolls so that you didn't have to open a scroll all the way to the end to see who a letter was from. In that day, customarily, they would put who was writing the letter at the beginning of the letter rather than dear John at the end of it. So it would begin with identifying the writer and who's writing letter. And notice in verse one here that Peter uses both names that were given to him to identify himself. Now that's interesting because in his first letter, he just calls himself Peter. But here the spirit of God moves him in such a way where he uses both names that he received to identify himself. Simon Peter. Now, Simon, we know, was his given name that was supplied to him from his parents as the result of his natural birth. Peter, remember, the Gospels tell us, is the name that he received from Jesus, who when they had an encounter with each other, Jesus, it seems, seeing the spiritual destiny of who Simon Peter would become, said, your name is Cephas, which is the Aramaic of Simon, but you shall be called Peter. And Jesus, seeing the potential of God in Peter's life, gives to him this name, changes his names, because Jesus sees who he would become spiritually. The word Peter, we know, just simply means stone or rock. And the idea being that Jesus saw that he ultimately would become a very strong, stable, spiritual follower of Christ, that he would become a rock and a foundational follower of Jesus Christ that would be a good example to others among the church. And this man, whose name originally was Simon, and so when Peter uses the name Simon there, what's interesting that he includes it, that's a reference to who he was naturally. And we know who Peter was naturally. He was things like what? Impulsive. He was, he was extremely unpredictable. He was intense and passionate. Whatever Peter did, he did full extreme. So whether he was walking on water or he was sinking in the water, whatever Peter did, he did 180%. And Peter was an individual who was just kind of a man of extremes, impulsive, unpredictable. That's who he was naturally. But Jesus gives him the name Peter, which is a reference to who he would become as the grace of God by his spirit was working in his life to ultimately make him become the man that God intended him to become. And he develops into a spiritual rock, a stable, strong follower of Christ and the Lord transforms. And I think Peter just appreciated the transformation process that the Lord was accomplishing in his life. And it's probably why here at the end of his life, in just sort of this humble recognition of knowing who he was and knowing who the Lord was making him become or had made him become over the years of following him, he just sort of, in, in a humble remembrance, he says, man, I remember, I remember who I was naturally, Simon. I, I, I know that guy. And I know who I am naturally, but he realized that his relationship with Jesus was bringing about supernatural change in his life. And I think the same really applies to all of us. There is who we are naturally. And you know who you are naturally by nature. You know your temperament and the way, again, that God's created you and designed you. But you know who you are in your flesh and in your sinful nature and the struggles and the temperament. 
But the wonderful thing is that if you are following Jesus and you've been walking with the Lord, you also begin to sense who the Lord intends for you to be. And you recognize who he's making you become. That yes, there's who you are naturally, but there's also who God's making you become supernaturally. As his spirit is working in you and changing you and transforming you as you're developing into the Christ-likeness that God intends. And wonderful thing for us to know that God knows who we are. And he's not intimidated by who you are. You know, sometimes we think, oh man, I mean, the Lord's hand, but if he had any idea, well, I'm, a, I'm a tough case. I'm unique. No, you're not. God created you. God's not surprised. And God's not looking at you going, boy, now other people I could transform, but whew, I, I just don't know about her. Or I just don't know about him. I mean, that would be, yeah, that would be a project. I mean, I, I don't know if we really could. Listen, not as an intimidate God. God can transform any life. And he knew what you were when he made you naturally. And the wonderful thing is he knows the potential of what he can cause you to become as he works in you supernaturally as well as he transforms you through a supernatural process. And I think for us to humbly remember who we are naturally and who God's making us become is just a wonderful thing of humility. Notice also Peter takes two titles to his name in verse 1. He calls himself both a bondservant and, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again there, in his first letter, he just called himself an apostle. Here he takes a secondary title to his name. He calls himself a bondservant and an apostle. A bondservant was a slave by choice. This came from the Old Testament practice. If you remember in the Old Testament, uh, if you were a slave to a master, there would come a time when you could receive your freedom. And when you were able to receive your freedom, at that point, you actually had a choice. If you loved your master and you had a good master and he took care of you, then you could choose to become an indentured servant where basically you submitted yourself to that master and said, you know what, I don't want my freedom. You're a good master. My life is good serving you and way better than if I served myself or served anyone else. And they could then have their master bring them uh, to the, the uh, post of the house and they would put it all through the year and put a little gold hoop in and they would become a bond servant and basically that little gold hoop indicated i'm a slave by preference yes i still do all the household duties i i work like all the rest of the servants but i am a servant and serving my master not because i have to and enslaved but i do it because i love my master and I would not rather spend time serving anyone else other than serving this master. And Peter here saw himself as a humble servant of Christ, willing to do whatever Jesus asked him to do, not because he had to, but because he loved his master. And out of that gratitude and love for Jesus as his master, he wanted to do anything. It didn't matter what the service was, whatever humble activity needed to be done, Peter was willing to do that. But notice he also calls himself here in the same verse an apostle. And that is a term that means one sent out with authority to act on behalf of the authority of another. And this is a reference, that title, apostle, to Peter's spiritual authority in his leadership role in the church. He was one of the 12 apostles. So Peter recognized that Jesus had commissioned him and sent him forth to be an authorized overseer, to establish doctrine in the early church and to direct spiritual affairs. And he understood his authority and his spiritual leadership. And I just think it's beautiful, again, as we alluded to earlier, how to see at the end of Peter's life, as he's been walking with Jesus for a long time, that this man 
has come to understand the balance of both roles. That he needed to be a humble servant, but he also needed to be a strong leader. And he realized he could be both. Peter understood that he could be what we would call a servant leader. In fact, you notice the order there? Look at it in verse 1. He calls himself a servant first and an apostle second. Point being that he understood the value of being a servant leader. And, and the benefit that that brings, because that's who Jesus was when he was God, but yet in flesh, human and divine. That's what Jesus was. Jesus was a servant leader. That's the greatest kind of leadership that could exist is when we recognize who we are and we yield to what God's doing in our life. And remember, by way of application for our lives, wherever the Lord sends you, wherever he sends you out, above all else, be a servant there first. You can be a strong leader and a person of great influence, but if you're a servant and people recognize that, that will just further facilitate your leadership capacity and will breed stronger commitment to what you're doing. And just I find this beautiful. Here at the end of his life, there's a humility that's come into his life on a deeper level. Verse 1, he then goes on to identify who he's addressing in the letter. He says, to those who've obtained a like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So just like his first letter, it's not written to a specific local church like the believers in Ephesus or Colossians. This is written as what we call a general epistle. First Peter chapter 1 says that it's written to a group of Christians who are scattered around Asia Minor. And Peter says in this same letter, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So we know he's writing to the same group of Christians, to a group of Christians scattered around the area of Asia Minor. And look how he describes his fellow Christian brothers and sisters in verse 1. He describes his fellow believers as those who have obtained a like precious faith with us. Now that like precious faith, the faith there is a reference to the faith. The Christian faith, whereby we experience God's salvation in our lives. And Peter understood there is total equality in the Christian faith. That it doesn't matter what your status in life, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your age or anything else. That it's a like precious faith. That we all alike share the same faith in Christ for salvation. And every human being equally needs the faith in Jesus Christ to be saved from their sins and every human being can equally freely come by faith to receive the gift of God's salvation that's been afforded to us. Peter describes this faith as well. Notice he uses that term again as a precious faith. That our Christian faith, he says, it's a precious faith. And that word precious implies something that's valuable, something that has immeasurable worth or immense worth and why does it have such value? Well, first of all, because of what it costs to provide it. Think what it costs to provide it. Peter tells us in his first letter that we weren't redeemed with things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the reason our faith is so precious and valuable is because it costs the precious blood of God's Son that he, that he allowed to be sacrificed for us in order for us to be forgiven. And it's also valuable and precious because of what it supplies to us. I mean, I would say our faith is worth quite a bit because it's through this faith in Jesus Christ for salvation that your sins are forgiven. It's through this faith in Jesus Christ that you have the hope of eternal life that you're going to get to go to heaven 
and not suffer torment in hell forever and ever. That's pretty valuable. Not to mention the fact that it gives to us access to God, that we can come freely to God as an individual. We don't have to go through a church or through another person or through some spiritual mediator. We can come directly to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice it's not something that we attain. It's something he says that we've obtained in the text. It's a gift. It's something that we've received. He tells us as well in this same verse here that we receive this by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how it came to us. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two things are being alluded to here. First of all, you have in that section of Scripture a declaration of the deity of Jesus. That phrase there is seeking to make an expression that Jesus is God. When you look at the grammar, it clearly indicates that God and Savior both are terms referring to Jesus Christ. In other words, the language there is declaring to us that both of those titles describe the same person, that Jesus is God and he is our Savior. In other words, telling us what the Bible shows us, that Jesus is divine. The Bible teaches the divinity of Jesus all throughout. That Jesus was not just connected to God, or he wasn't just from God, that Jesus was God. He was God who became our Savior. And this is the marvel of God's plan of salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 says that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus who is God actually becomes our savior and see that's why as well God's plan of salvation is righteous that's why we can be saved by the righteousness of our God and savior the way God offers his plan of salvation and the way he continues to operate it from the way he established it to how he offers it to all of us is completely righteous it's on a just basis that we can be saved now that's very very important because God's salvation was created and designed in a way whereby it might be righteous in what it offers and it is offered in a righteous basis that no one can question. We need to always remember something. The very God whom we all sin against is a holy and a righteous God. And this holy and righteous God whom we sin against can't just wink at or overlook our sin and say, well, you you know what? All right, I'm going to give you a pass because you do help old ladies across the street once in a while and you haven't kicked your dog in three days. And so, All right, I'm going to give you a pass. God can't do that. Sin is sin. And sin must be punished. God would not be a good God if he didn't punish sin. He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be just. He would be evil. A good and righteous judge judges evil and iniquity. So, so here's God. He has people who sin against him and God can't compromise his righteousness and his holiness and justice to let people be saved and go to heaven. So what does he have to do? God needs to create a righteous, just basis for people to be forgiven of their sin and be saved. So what does God do? God takes the initiative upon himself to save the very people who sin against him. And does that by, in a sense, a loving, gracious, sacrificial way. He retreats into his great love for the world. And he creates a way whereby, as the very God who has sinned against, through the person of a son, as God in human flesh, Jesus comes, lives the sinless life that we can't live, 
and then dies sacrificially for the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that he can reconcile sinful people to holy God. This is what the Bible teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yet God was in Christ. Jesus who is God was the one who was reconciling us back to God. This is the teaching, again, if you want to study it more in depth, of Romans chapter 3, which talks to us about how God, to demonstrate his righteousness, created a just way for us to be forgiven and saved so that he could be just and at the same time the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. That a just God would create a just way of salvation and say somebody has to be punished, so I'll take the punishment upon myself. I'll lovingly sacrifice through the death of my son so that my wrath is satisfied and my love can be extended and I can offer salvation. And it's totally righteous. And nobody can question it. And it's offered in a way that is just and fair. And God supplies his salvation in a way that is righteous to everybody. Romans 3 says this, For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. See, the glory of God's plan of salvation as God and Savior through Jesus is anybody can come. It doesn't matter who you are. And I don't care what you've done. God's created a just basis that the person who thinks that they're the most wonderful, moral, goody-two-shoes on the planet is just as much in God's eyes a wicked, loathsome sinner as the person who thinks that they are the most defiled, filthy, disgusting thing on this planet. God says, you know what? Uh, sin is sin. You're all guilty. So everyone can freely come, but it also means this. Everybody has to come the same way. You don't get special allowances. You can't tip God in a, you know, with, with a hundo. Here's, here's a hundred. Can I, can I park over there? Because I got a hundo here. That don't work with God. God goes, that doesn't, it's not, doesn't sufficient. The redemption of a soul is costly. The Bible says, what can man give to God for redemption of soul? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing available. What God did is all that God accepts. So it's righteous. Anyone can come. But humbly, we all must come through the same way by humbling ourselves and accepting God's salvation as he's offered it to us. Verse 2, Peter goes on saying, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So again, a typical ancient greeting, grace and peace. Uh, and grace refers to experiencing blessing or special favor. It's God's generous kindness. Peace is experiencing rest and tranquility, or we might say the absence of conflict. And Peter, like the Apostle Paul, uses these same greetings. These are greetings that were pronounced upon people in the culture. He takes these same two greetings like the Apostle Paul and realizes that both grace and peace find their source in God. Because remember, Peter said in 1 Peter 5 that God is the God of all grace. And then five times throughout the New Testament, you find the term, the God of peace. So Peter, just like the Apostle Paul, understands, hey, where is this grace and peace found? It's found in God. That's why he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, he says, may you experience the grace and the peace of God in multiplied measures in your life. But notice the channel through which God's grace and peace is experienced. He says, verse 2, it comes to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. That term knowledge there is a specific term that was used to refer to experiential knowledge, not just intellectual information. It's a word for knowledge that speaks of knowledge that's gained by experience. In other words, you know it because you've experienced it firsthand. That's the term that's used there. That by firsthand experiential knowledge, as you encounter God personally, as you understand what it means to live in submission to Jesus as Lord in a, in a personal way, that is where the channel of God's grace and peace begins to flow into a person's life. That as we encounter the Father and Son in an experiential way, we then begin to experience the grace of God and the peace of God flowing into our lives. But it comes through an encounter, through a relationship. It's not just the acquisition of information. Well, if I know some things about God, then I'll start to experience grace and peace in my life. Uh, no, you'll probably just, if you're not careful, start to get a, a big head and just know spiritual information. God wants you to have experiential knowledge where you say, I, you know, I'm experiencing God and, 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 and you're encountering Jesus in a personal way. It's through that that the channel of God's grace and peace begins to flow into a person's heart and soul. Verse 3 says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Again, notice our term, same term there, through the knowledge, through the experiential knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So the point the writer is making here in verse 3 is that our salvation experience of coming to know Jesus in an experiential way he says, as the result of that, God has supplied to us everything we need for spiritual life and for godly living. That's what verse 3 is telling us here. He references our salvation experience, notice in verse 3 in the text, as being something initiated by God. He tells us very clearly in the third verse there that God is the one who has called us by His glory and virtue. That is, God in His love initiated the plan of salvation. He created the pathway whereby we might experience salvation. And then in a very personal way, though we are sinners and rebels separated from God, lost and hopeless, in his love he then pursues us and he calls us and each one of us in a unique way. He knows just how to bring us to him in a relationship with him whereby we come to then experience and know him in a real and a personal way. And it's different how he does it in each of our lives. But every one of us, he calls us to himself so that we come to know him in a genuine and a personal way. He draws us and we have a personal encounter with the living God because we heard his call and we heard him calling us saying, you know what? Yeah, you're a sinner like everybody else. And the sooner we can get you to accept that for yourself, we can forgive that sin in your life and take the guilt out of your internal being. And he calls us and he says, you know what? I know that you're trying hard and you're doing you know, the best that you can. But the sooner you realize that I'm supposed to be the Lord of your life, I'm supposed to be leading your life, things would get a whole lot more easier if you just turn the steering wheel over and let go and trust me and follow me as your Lord and Master. And, and for all of us, we hear that call and at some point in faith, we then respond to that call. And it's when we respond to that call and we truly encounter God in salvation, the Bible says at that moment His Spirit indwells us. And the Holy Spirit who is outside drawing us and drawing us and convicting us and bringing us saying, come on, come follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. You know you should follow Him. The Spirit of God at the moment of conversion then enters on the inside. 
and salvation happens. What Jesus talks about being born again takes place. Romans chapter 8 says this, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead then dwells in you. And He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's why Peter says here in verse 3 to us that His divine power, God's power, divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has supplied or bestowed His power in our life through the Holy Spirit so that there is supplied to us what we need. His Spirit has brought about, you could say, spiritual life. Spiritual life is not something that we can generate on our own. We're dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. We all in our fallen condition need to be made alive spiritually. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. You have to have a spiritual birth because we're initially dead in trespasses and sins. But the Bible says by God's divine power, we have to be made alive. God has to make you and make me come alive spiritually to experience life spiritually in order for us to be conscious of God and to enter into a relationship with God it's necessary that he make us alive. And by his divine power, we've been given life, spiritual life. And by his divine power, he doesn't just start our spiritual life. He then enables us to continue in spiritual life. Because as you begin to walk with Jesus, and for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a while, you realize the Christian life can't be lived in the flesh. That was the problem with the church in Galatia, where Paul said to him, look, having begun in the spirit, do you think you're now going to be made perfect in the flesh? God saved you by a powerful work of his spirit in your life and made you come awakened to the consciousness of God and have a relationship with him. But he says in the same way, to continue in a relationship with him, you need to then walk in the spirit. And we need the power of God to help us to pray. I need the power of God to help me to read and understand his word, to overcome sin and to follow him. Jesus said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. This is the whole idea. We've come into the life of the Spirit, but we also need the life of God's Spirit to help us to continue to experience God on a daily basis. We have to be open and yielded to the work of God's Spirit in our life. And I love that Peter assures us as well in this verse, a great promise. He says, His divine power has given to us all things for spiritual life as well as for godliness. Now, that's very encouraging. That means God supplied to you and I his divine power in order to help us to live a godly life. And I'm not a very godly individual naturally. You can ask my family. I had a little slip yesterday in the midst of my impatience and demonstrated who I was in my flesh. And it was very evident that I can't live godly on my own. But the wonderful thing is God says, but I've given you my power to help you to live godly. By nature, you're sinful, you're a rebel, you're rotten, you're cantankerous. That's who, that's who we are by nature. And how wonderful to know that we don't have to experience the fear or the struggle of trying to be expected to accomplish godliness in our own efforts. That's impossible. Nobody can live godly. God doesn't expect us to accomplish in our own efforts to be righteous or godly rather he's given us his power to do such i love what jesus promised where he said i won't leave you as orphans but i'll give you another helper to abide with you or to live with you the holy spirit so the holy spirit lives within us to help us live godly take note 
It's not Easter, but let me say this again in connection to what I said last week. This is the distinction between Christianity and every other world religion that exists. See, other world religions declare that people should live in a certain way. But then all of the pressure and responsibility upon the followers of Islam or Buddhism or whatever else may be, all the pressure and responsibility is on the follower to, in their own strength and their own effort, live according to what that so-called holy book says. In Christianity, it's vastly different. God gives us his word. He says, this is my plan. This is my will. This is the way I want you to live, how to live a godly life. But then God says, but I'm not going to leave you alone to do that by yourself. You can't live like that by yourself. I'm going to share my life with you because I'm a living God. I'm not dead in a tomb. Jesus has risen from the dead. And so Jesus says, this is how I want you to live. And I'm going to come live within you and empower you to live that way. And help you to live godly. And this is an incredible arrangement. Paul says in Galatians 2, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, this is the glory of Christianity. That we can live godly, not because of our own strength and effort, but because God can do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond whatever we could ask or think through his power working in us. And as he works within us, he enables us to live a godly life. It's quite a wonderful arrangement. God says, believe on my finished work. And once you do that, you'll be saved. And then he says, and then afterwards, just let me work in your life. Let me help you be godly. Let me change you and conform you again through the experiential knowledge of him. Verse four, he then says, by which have also been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, through those promises, we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So verse 4 shows us here how the Lord has supplied valuable spiritual promises that if we draw upon them in faith, that through those promises of God, we can experience becoming more like God in a decaying world. Again, he uses those same terms. These things have been given to us. Verse 3, divine power given to us. Verse 4, there have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. God's word is filled, is it not, if you're a Bible reader, with so many promises, wonderful promises. And how glorious it is to discover those promises and then by faith to yield to those promises in such a way where you actually experience that promise in your life in a personal way. Whether it's the promise of God of the assurance of his forgiveness, like 1 John 1, 9, where God says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. Or to say, Lord, I know you're calling me to serve in this way or to share the gospel and I'm scared or to be a stronger witness in my school or with my family or my friends. And he says, look, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be a witness for me. Or to realize there's promises like 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation will seize you except it's as common to all men. But God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under. Oh, Lord, a promise so that I don't have to fall prey to temptation. Thank you for that promise. And all these promises, whether it's the presence of His Spirit dwelling in us or the peace of God available to us or His love or the assurance where Jesus says to us, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to be with me where I am. 
And all these promises afforded to us, and he, this is the great thing, gang, it's the God who's behind those promises. That's what makes him exceedingly great and precious promises. Because the God behind these promises, the Bible says he cannot lie. He's not like all the people in your life who have made a promise and then they lie to you and they never follow through with it. This God cannot lie. And more than that, it's not just that he honors his word because he's faithful. God has no limitations to his resources. So when God makes a promise, he has all the capability to bring about that promise, even if it looks like it's unlikely. In the most unlikely circumstances, God can give a promise and he says, look, the circumstances mean nothing because I have all power and all the resources of heaven behind me and I can fulfill that promise. And I can accomplish that promise by simple work in your life. And, and this is why Peter says we, as a result, have also then through these promises become partakers of the divine nature. That word partaker means a participant, someone who shares in something. When you partake of something, you're sharing in it. And he says we get, as Christians, to be participants in experiencing God's nature in our own life. That we can actually begin to express the character and the attributes of God. The best way I can illustrate it simply is this. When you look at a child, a natural born child, by DNA, they inherit the nature of their parents. Children represent the nature of their parents. Like father, like son, we understand that. And in the same way, spiritually, when you're born again and you become a child of God, in a sense, God's spiritual DNA gets deposited into your life. As the very Spirit of God Himself enters into your life when you're born again and you honestly become a child of God when you accept Jesus Christ, God puts His spiritual DNA into your life and then He spends the rest of your Christian life as you're growing up spiritually seeking to work out by His power His nature in your life, causing you to reflect Him more, that you represent Him well as a child of God and He gives us the capacity to become more like Him so that we actually represent him well as a child. So we begin to become more loving, like God's loving. We begin to become more patient, because God's patient. We begin to become more faithful and more compassionate and more merciful and more just and more righteous. And this happens as we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And the Bible says this is what God's plan is in all of our life, to cause us to be conformed into the image of his son Jesus 2 Peter 3.18 says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, listen, being transformed. You haven't been transformed. We're being transformed. We're being transformed from the same image to glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Again, do you see the connection there? The, the symmetry in God's Word? We're being conformed in the image of Jesus. God's trying to make you more like Christ, make me become more like Him, represent His divine nature that's been deposited in us. And it happens, it says, as we're being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, I'm trying to be more like Jesus. I'm trying to be more like Jesus. Good luck with that. <laughs> God bless you. Christianity is not confirmation. You're trying to conform yourself to Christ. This, I think, was one of the great dangers, and forgive me if this sounds insulting, of the whole WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because the idea is people think, okay, how does Jesus act? Let me try and act like Jesus. Let me try and imitate Jesus. Christianity is not imitation as much as it's impartation. The life of Christ in you 
conforming you, making you more like Jesus as you decrease and die to yourself. And Jesus says, listen, we can't have two Christians in the same body. Would you die so I can live? Would you die so I can live out my life through you? Because I'll do a much better job being a Christian because I'm Christ. See, this is the truth of Christianity. Not trying to act like Jesus, but letting the Spirit of God work in us as we just walk with Jesus and behold Jesus and have a relationship with him and God begins to change us and to conform us. And notice the whole end goal of this is so that we can escape the corruption of the world, it says, verse 4, which is decaying because of its lusts. See, the world lives according to the lust of its flesh and its desires. And whatever people in the world who don't know God want to do, whatever feels good, whatever their preference is, that's their standard. So they live according to a corrupt standard because it is the standard of their own selfish patterns. So whatever feels good, whatever they think is right or deem as correct, they live according to that way and not according to God's will. And God's word says that's what's causing the corruption of this world. That's why our world's decaying and that's why it's falling apart. But God's purpose is he wants us to escape. He wants us to escape the corruption of the world that's happening through people's lusts. And the way he does that is by saving us and giving us a new nature. He gives us a new nature because nature determines how a person acts and behaves. This is God's marvelous plan. It's not to just try and renovate us like a recycling process. God changes our whole nature. Why does a dog act like a dog? Because it's a dog. It has a dog nature. So that's why dogs do some of the things that dogs do that cats don't do or that chimpanzees don't do. You know, why does a dog, when he first meets another dog, need to sniff a particular area on another dog? Why do they do that? Humans don't do that. It would be kind of strange if we greet each other that way, wouldn't it? We don't do that. Why? Because we don't have a dog nature. The nature of a creature causes it to behave accordingly. See, so God says, this is what I want to do. I don't want to make you get all religious and fix you up. I want to change your nature. The problem is your nature. You have a sin nature. I want to save you and live inside of you and become involved in your life so that you'll have a godly nature and then you'll have godly appetites. That's why Christians want to read the Bible or they should anyway because they have the nature of God in them. That's why Christians want to talk to God because they have God's nature inside. That's why Christians want to live for God because they have God's nature inside of them. And see, what a marvelous plan God creates as he does this. And this morning, I would leave you with this thought. Do you sense God's plan for you in your life, but yet you are concerned because you feel, I'm so weak, I just don't know how I can do that? Listen, there is divine power available to help you. God says, I don't expect you to do it on your own. I'll give you the power to do that. I'll enable you by my grace.